My name is Brooks Buser, and this is a very brief uh, overview of the Theology of Suffering class that we put on at Radius International. I helped lead that program, and this was a breakout session uh, that I originally did for Advance the Gospel Conference. So uh, I hope you find this encouraging. I hope for those of you that are considering going to the mission field to see churches planted to God's glory among the nations, that this will be a help to you and assist to you and something to think through before you head for the field. So just by way of background, uh, before we dive into the material, uh, my wife and I served over in Papua New Guinea for 13 years. Uh, we moved in among the Yembe Yembe people and lived with them for 13 years. We learned their language. We developed an alphabet for them. We taught them how to read and write for the first time. And then we translated the scriptures along with our teammates uh, into their language. Uh, the translation process took us nine years. Uh, we had a very good team. We had a lot of giftings on that team, and there was a lot to be thankful for. And so through all of that, I'm going to draw some illustrations from that just so you have some backgrounds. So forging a durable theology of suffering, I'm hoping that you're able to get this PowerPoint. Uh, I broke this talk into four sections. Number one, a biblically calibrated expectation. Those who go into missions... Those who are Christians, who are Christ followers, have a biblically calibrated expectation for suffering. They think through the way that Jesus talked about suffering, the way that the apostles talked about suffering, the way that saints of old talked about suffering, and based off of those expectations, they live their lives. And when the suffering, when the events of life come, they're not thrown for as big of a loop because they've calibrated their expectations accordingly. And then number two, a long-term view of missions rooted in the church. Those who are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to see churches planted by God's grace have a well-formed ecclesiology. They understand why the church is primary. They understand why uh, the church needs to come first in missions. All other things are supports to that. Bible translation, literacy, mercy ministries, all of these things are wonderful things. By God's grace, there are many people around the world doing them. But the, the queen, the emperor, the thing that we are shooting for, the bride, that's the church. And so to have a long-term view of missions rooted in the church. Churches don't spring up overnight. They take time. Uh, they are a long-term process. Uh, they are not a five-year or less endeavor. And so a biblically calibrated, durable theology of suffering is always going to have a long-term mentality with good ecclesiology rooted in it. And then number three, a biblical view of the sovereignty of God. <clears throat> We're going to look at some verses in this. Uh, how when someone goes through suffering, their sweetest companion is always the knowledge that my God has not forgotten me. My God has ordained all things, everything good and painful that comes into my life comes from the hand of a loving God. And so to, to look at some verses to undergird that. And then finally, a biblical view of this world and the world to come. Missionaries and Christians for 2,000 years have always had the ability to look past this world, to look to the world to come, and then that makes sense of this world. There's two worlds that we live in. We're citizens of the world to come, but we're sojourners. We're aliens. We're strangers. We are people not yet home. This isn't home. No matter where you call this particular place, where you live, where you reside, where you go to school, this is not your home. 
uh, for Christians for 2,000 years, we always look forward to the real world, the world that is without fail going to be our home, our city, our new heaven and new earth. And so we look for these two worlds and we understand these two worlds if we're to understand suffering. So in conjunction with this, I'm going to bring in uh, some quotes from Adniram Judson. I pray for everyone watching this uh, that you have read To the Golden Shore. It's the best missionary biography that I have come across. And I have read dozens and dozens of missionary biographies uh, to the Golden Shore by Courtney Anderson. Courtney Anderson, when he wrote the biography, Courtney Anderson, most people don't think he was even a Christian. He was so taken by the story of what happened with Adoniram Judson. And this picture that I've got on the PowerPoint, this is his first wife, Anne. Uh, there's another biography. I think it's just as good. It's the letters of John, uh, excuse me, of Adoniram Judson's three wives. And this is his first wife, Anne Judson. And then you get to his second wife, Sarah, and you hear the stories of those two. They're the ones that kind of make up the bulk of it. Uh, but Emily, the last one, is also there. There's this biography called The Three Mrs. Judsons. That's an equally good biography. Uh, if you are a young woman, I would highly encourage you to read The Three Mrs. Judsons. So I'm going to draw from Adoniram and Ann Judson, and then at the end we'll pull in one quote from Sarah Judson as well. So you'll see this graphic pop up whenever we do a quote of them. So expectations. Uh, as I start this off, for us to understand... We're shaped and we're molded by the forces that helped us become the men and the women that we are today, by our upbringing, by the way that our country has shaped us, by the way that our ecosystem, hopefully by the way that our church has helped shape our life. Uh, when we moved into Yembe Yembe, this is a picture of, <coughs> excuse me, the Yembe's paddling a canoe. And when we moved in there, we had a motor canoe. A motor canoe is about a 40-foot long canoe. It's got an outboard motor on the back of it. And I remember for uh, the first three times just being shocked because when we moved into Yembe, the temperature is about 110 every day with about 90% humidity. It was warm. And I mean, it was a, it's a wonderful weight loss program, but it was horrible for uh, your body when you were coming from San Diego, California, where I'm from, and uh, moving over there. But when we were getting into these motor canoes with the Yembe's, the first few times that we would get on them, we would go for about five, 10 minutes, and I would look around at the Yembies that were in the canoe with me, and they would be shivering. They would be shaking because the temperature had dropped from about 110 to about 95. And just that 15-degree difference, sometimes it would be about 17 degrees, but it, it felt glorious for myself and the other missionaries. For the Yembies, though, their bodies had been conditioned by the environment that they had grown up in. And for Americans in particular, and I, I hope there are others from other countries that are watching this, the, the expectations that we come into life with help shape us, and sometimes they don't shape us in a helpful way. They mold us with an expectations that we have rights. Justice needs to be served. Things need to be done in a manner to where things are equitable. Those are values of this world, but for Christians, we die to those values, especially those Christians who are going overseas, who are going into countries that are hostile to the gospel, places where the church has never been established. Those cannot be your expectations as you head into those environments. Let's look really quickly, and again, a biblically calibrated expectations. This is the first one that we're going to get into. Let's look really quickly at Jesus' view on suffering and how he phrased and how he exposed his disciples to 
what it was like to be a follower of his. And let's reflect on ourselves while we're doing the same, uh, while we're reading this passage. John 12, 20 through 16 says this, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, there were some Greeks. And this is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. We know he's going to be crucified when he gets there. But it's this final uh, journey. And we see the first vestiges of the Gentiles coming to him in this passage. But there's also this kernel that we'll see. So these came to Philip. Who are these? These are the Greeks or the Gentiles and who were from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. There's this truth that comes through so clearly in this passage that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, the process of the outer husk being removed, of going into the soil, unless it dies to certain things, it cannot reproduce. And this is the life of a follower of Christ. And this isn't talking, sometimes it is. I mean, we just went through the 67-year anniversary, uh, if you're watching this in the next couple of years, of uh, God planting five seeds, those five missionaries who were martyred, and that whole truth that's encapsulated in there, God planting five seeds. Sometimes it will require physical death to see the gospel advance, but more often than not, it's death to things that are close to us. Death to spending holidays with family members. Death to speaking the English language on a regular basis. Death to wearing clothes and different things that we are comfortable with. To changing the way that you eat. To changing your diet. To changing all of the different facets of who you are. So that the gospel will come in full power to a people group who has never heard it before. There's a death involved in being a follower of Christ. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies it remains alone. This is one of these truths that Jesus pressed into his disciples. The Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his heads. Birds have nests. Things that you have expectations for. If you're a follower of mine, if you're a follower of Christ, those expectations die on the way to being a Christ follower. John 15, 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If they persecuted the king, if they didn't listen to the words of the king, how much more the servants of the king? For North Americans in particular to recalibrate our expectations, this is what is supposed to be happening. In many ways, we've been living in a bubble in a bubble that is not normal for the 2,000 years of church history. And as you go overseas, as missionaries, as Christ followers, take the gospel to foreign lands, they will come face to face with a world that hates the gospel overtly. Subtly, those things are creeping into a lot of societies in the West, but overtly, you're going to see more and more of this. This is the expectation 
Christ followers didn't have. And then the apostles' view on suffering. It wasn't just Jesus. Jesus gave this to the apostles, and the apostles wrote about this in Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.39, Luke writes down this. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, and this is the history, remember, John and Peter, they went in before the Sanhedrin, they'd been preaching that these uh, that Jesus has been crucified, that the leaders of the Jewish world were held responsible for this. And so they kicked him out, and Gamaliel gave him the speech and said, guys, if this is of God, it's going to go on. If it's not of God, it'll die on its own. And so here we take up the, the narrative again. So they took his advice, Gamaliel's advice. And when they had called them in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They rejoiced at the honor. They rejoiced at the glory of being counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. This is the expectation. If this happened to the patristic fathers, if this happened to the apostles, if this happened to those in the first and the second century, if this happened to the fathers of the Reformation, if this happened throughout medieval history, if this is the lineage of Christ followers, then our age is no different. Another passage, 1 Peter 4.12, Peter's writing this to the dispersion, those who are scattered around the world who are going through different trials. This is towards the end of the first beginning of the second century. Most church historians will say, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you go through hard times, if you go through difficulties for the name of Christ, there are a lot of Christians that go through difficulties because of self-inflicted wounds, because of things that they did to himself, themselves. Foolishness should not be counted as suffering for Christ. But if you are taking the name of Christ somewhere, if you're advancing the cause of Christ, if you're living as a Christian and you're being insulted for these things, if you are taking on some sort of suffering for these things, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Because his glory, when it's revealed, you too will be in glory. You too will share the glory of the king. This is the expectation for years and years and decades of Christians. We rejoice at our sufferings because of what's to come. And we know this is normal. This is not abnormal. This is what we are to expect if we are Christ followers. So that calibrated expectation of suffering, that would be the first main thing. This is, I think, one of the salient quotes uh, that Adoniram Judson, if you're reading his biography to the Golden Shore, Adoniram knew what he was heading into. He knew that the likelihood of death was going to be high. He knew that if he brought a spouse, he knew that if he had children while he was on the field, they would most likely go through some pretty rough times. And in fact, he would lose seven of his children. He would have uh, I think it was close to 12 children between the three ladies that he was married to. He wasn't married to them simultaneously. One, one of them died, and then he would marry the second one, and then she died, and then he married the third one. But he would have children, and he would lose quite a few of these children. And he's writing to his father-in-law, and he has the moxie 
the guts to write his father-in-law and explain what he is giving his daughter toward. Listen to how he writes to his father-in-law. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjugation to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insults, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? He writes that to his father-in-law before he'd even married her. He was clear-eyed. He knew what he was stepping into. And he didn't want even his father-in-law, even his in-laws, to have some sort of a rosy-colored glow on what they were stepping into. No, no, no. This is what your daughter is buying into, and I pray this is what you're buying into as well. Friends, if we're ever going to develop a theology of suffering, a durable theology of suffering, a theology of suffering that will stand up under pain, under stress, when all of the world is avalanching in, it's because we had the expectation, yeah, this is how it should be. This is the way that I have thought it through. This is what I have been told through scripture and through church history. This is the expectation of Christians, especially Christians who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We expect these things. Number two, (coughs) excuse me, a long-term view of missions rooted in the church. So what has become in vogue, unfortunately, in the last probably 50 to 75 years is short-term missions with the end goal of seeing the nations evangelized. There's nothing wrong with short-term missions. Short-term missions is helpful as long as, one, it's exposing people to long-term missions, and number two, it is helping long-term missionaries on the field. But short-term missions in and of itself is insufficient to see the gospel advance and churches planted where none exist. It does not have the mechanism in and of itself to do that. Long-term missions is the only thing that we see that going forward. And so long-term missions, though, is code for church planting. The reason that we know church planting is the fulfillment of the Great Commission is because of what the disciples did. Once they'd heard on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gives the command, go therefore, baptize the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What did they do? They went out, they evangelized, they discipled, and they gathered the disciples into local churches. You want to know why church planning? Because that's how the disciples, the first, the ones who heard it from Jesus' lips, that's what they went and did with their lives. And so long-term missions is kind of code for church planting. We go to places, we tell them the gospel in their language in a culturally appropriate way so that they can understand it. We disciple those who believe, and while we're discipling them, the biggest part of the discipling them is gathering them into churches, gathering them into little bodies of Christians that hopefully will last for generations. And so we have a biblically calibrated view of missions and a long-term view that stretches into the church. This is Adoniram Judson, and I, I bring this quote in just because Adoniram was, he was a forerunner in so many ways. He's the first, he's not the first, but he was the most notorious of the early missionaries that went out from the United States. He went out from Boston 
and he became so popular because of the suffering that he went through. He was in jail for a couple years and just barely survived and kept him alive. But by the end of his days, short-term missionaries started showing up, and this was his reaction to it. The opening of 1833 brought additional missionaries from the United States, but as usual, they could not be of much real use until they became fluent in the language. And that would be a matter of years. At least one of these had come out with the understanding that his service was to be for a limited period of years. Adoniram was disturbed like all of his experienced colleagues. I much fear that this will occasion a breach in our mission. How can we who are devoted for life cordially take to our hearts one who is a mere hireling? I have seen the beginning, middle, and end of several limited-term missionaries. Though brilliant in an English pulpit, they are incompetent to any real missionary work. They come out for a few years with the view of acquiring a stock of credit on which they may vegetate the rest of their days in the congenial climate of their native land. The motto of every missionary, whether preacher, printer, or schoolmaster, ought to be devoted for life. Woo! This is my words. This is Adoniram Judson. Adoniram had spicy things to say about short-term missionaries because, again, Adoniram had a long-term view of what it would take to see the church established, to see actual bodies of believers brought up to where when the missionaries were gone, these churches would endure. They would continue to go. We have to develop a long-term view. And this is a couple pictures um, of uh, language learning. I tell you what, for the seed to fall to the ground and die, one of the hardest things, most missionaries and most churches don't understand this, but one of the hardest things, probably the hardest thing above all others to do when you are heading overseas to church plant among an unreached language group, learn their language to full fluency, to learn their language to full fluency, to lower yourself, to be humble enough, to be laughed at, to to come in, you who can speak so eloquently, who can stand in front of churches, who can do all of these things in your native lands, and now you're a two-year-old. Now you're a 10-year-old. Now you're a 12-year-old. You're not yet a man. You can't communicate in full sentences. You can't tell jokes and people laugh. You, you're 10 minutes late laughing at jokes that they tell. You have to humble yourself. And this is a dying to self that is very, very abnormal. And Christians, for thousands of years, have learned languages of the people that they are bringing the gospel to. This is us moving in among the Yembe Yembe. We got adopted into clans. Uh, my son, who is an only child, uh, we got adopted into, so there's four clans in Yembe Yembe. There's the Ostrich Clan, Eagle Clan, Black Cockatoos, and the Toucans. Uh, I'm a member, or I was adopted into the ostrich clan, and so it's a paternal system, so all of your children follow the father, and my wife was adopted into the eagle clan. So my son became a member of the ostrich clan, and he got 17 brothers and 13 sisters in one day. Uh, it was amazing. But this dying to self, this knowing, if the gospel's ever going to come in all of its power and in clarity to the MBMB people, we have to know their culture. We have to live like them. We have to eat like them. We have to know what it means to paddle the rivers in dry season and in wet season. We have to know how to hunt uh, like the Yembiembis. We have to live and become like them in as many ways as possible so that the gospel will come in clarity. And this is another aspect of Yembiembi life. Uh, if, I, if you ever come out to San Diego and I really like you, I'll take you out for seafood or I'll take you out to some other good restaurant and maybe buy a really nice steak or some lobster or something like that. If 
someone really likes you in Yembi Yembi, they give you grub worms. Uh, they take these particular worms that are really large, like two of my thumbs put together, and sometimes they're alive, sometimes they're not, and they give them to you, and your expectation is you need to eat these things uh, to show how much you are appreciated. My wife, they would bring us two bowls of these. My wife would choke down one of them, and then she'd go, these are so nice, but my husband loves these so much, and she would dump her bowl into mine. Uh, created a couple marriage issues there. But this is part of the dying to self, of living long-term, of becoming like your people, of thinking long-term for the sake of the gospel. What will it be like to communicate and to love these people in a way that they understand? Uh, I appreciate this, uh, uh, Courtney Anderson, putting this into the middle of the biography when Adoniram was becoming a known figure back in the United States of all the missionaries. This was a visiting pastor who wanted to, to know uh, why our Adoniram's life. He wanted to hang out with him. Of all the missionaries, it was Adoniram, by now a legendary figure to Americans, who interested Malcolm most. Adoniram himself did not realize how Burmese he had become, but he had lived in Burma more than half of his life now, and the Burmese language and customs were more familiar to him than those of his native land. What an incredible testimony. He was more familiar with Burmese. There's another passage in here where his kid, they were having a hard time teaching his kid English because his Burmese was so good and everybody around him spoke Burmese. And they had to work on his English for a few months because he, he at the dinner table, he couldn't communicate in English. And Adoniram, his mannerisms, his customs were more familiar in Burmese than they were in English. What a wonderful testimony. I remember when I was over in New Guinea, and uh, I was part of a church planning team that would go into different tribes and we would <clears throat> evaluate church planning teams. And one of the things I discovered, an older missionary taught me this. He goes, when you hang around missionaries and you spend time with them, everybody's sweating out there because it's in New Guinea. We're all in 100, 110 degree heat somewhere. And uh, to get around the missionaries who had been there the longest, their sweat smells differently. Their sweat smelled like the people that they had come to reach because their diet, people don't realize this, but your diet, the way that you, what you eat affects the smell of your sweat. And the missionaries who smelled like their people ate the food of their people. They had become so accustomed to the food. It doesn't mean they loved it. I don't think I'll ever get used to grub worms, but I've learned how to eat them and how to tolerate them to become like the Yembies because I love the Yembies. I want them to hear the word of God clearly, especially in those early days. And so this trait of becoming like your people for the sake of the gospel, which is for the sake of the church. And this is, again, a picture. Uh, these were our closing years as we would put the different elders through classes and we would uh, disciple them in different ways of becoming elders along with their wives and their children. And this is one of the pictures from last year. So we came back to the United States in 2016, and I go back to Yembi uh every year to check on the church. This is a picture of the elders and deacons and the elders and deacons in training uh, one year ago, just to see that group of believers continuing to persevere and to continue to press on. Number three, a biblical view of the sovereignty of God. A biblical view of the sovereignty of God. If someone doesn't have a understanding of God's sovereignty, of the way that he sees and knows all things, it's going to be very difficult for them to forge a durable theology of suffering. Let's look at some verses. Romans 8, 28. And we know, who's the we? We are the saints. 
the saved, the Christians. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. All of the upbringing issues, all of the things that make us the unique people that we are, the good and the bad, the things that shaped us, that molded us, the parents that God gave us, the hard things that have come into our life, all of them work together for good for God's purposes. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, there are no chances. Uh, We don't believe in luck if we're Christians. We believe that God ordains everything from the small little dust molecules that are in this room to the raindrops that are pounding outside right now to the cosmic events to how presidents and how princes are set up in this world to rulers and authorities to the visas that get stamped into your passport when you get over there and the immigration official that you end up with and the co-workers that you go to and the language that you're supposed to learn and the malaria medication that's available that week that your son gets sick or is not available, all of these things are under the sovereign control of our Lord. We don't rest in a world where there is some outside force that works its way in and snuck in and God was asleep or God didn't see that one coming. Everything, everything. There is no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. Lamentations 3, 37 to 39. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? God is not the author of evil, but he allows all things to come into our world. And if you don't believe that, it's going to be very difficult when things go wrong. It's going to be very difficult not to blame God. God either is impotent, he doesn't have the power to do these things, or he's not all loving. He doesn't have you and your best interest at heart when he allows that cancer to come, when he allows dengue fever to take your body for a season. Dengue fever is not fun. You have to have an undergirding understanding of the sovereignty of God. He has allowed these things to come into my life for a reason. And if you have those things, they're a wonderful ballast when the ship is going through deep seas. You guys understand uh, some of you maybe will come from East Coast or seafaring cultures. I, was, I had a dear friend who was on an island off the coast of New Guinea, 80 miles off the coast, and we would go out there occasionally to give them language evaluations and to visit. And <clears throat> to go out there when it was flat seas, no wind, no nothing, that, that's fairly easy. When you're going and you're going up the waves with your little boat, and we had about seven people in the boat, and then you're going down the waves, and that ship is held together, that little boat is held together by the bottom middle, has extra weight to it. It's the ballast that keeps us from tipping when the wind hits or when the wave hits. The ballast in a Christian's life, we understand and we believe with every fiber of our being that our God is in control of all things. All things come from his hand. Matthew 10, 29 through 31, I think this is probably the most comforting for Christians. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? What he's saying here is sparrows are fairly cheap. Sparrows are a dime a dozen, if we use the vernacular of our time. And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
basically the light things, the easy things, the things that are of lesser value. Your father knows these things and not one of them dies, not one of them falls to the ground apart from him allowing it. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. You're of greater value. Your father knows the hairs on it. That's a way of saying he knows every detail of you. He knows the DNA. He knows the history. He knows the dreams. He knows the things that you wrestle with, the stresses of your life, the individuals that are bringing certain good and bad things into your life. Your father knows all these things. And he loves you. He cares about you. And nothing is happening by chance. Christian, Christian missionary, keep these things in mind. Your father knows you. And he loves you. I love this from <clears throat> Judson. This is actually Anne. Uh, when they were in jail, she had a baby girl just before Adoniram goes into jail. And this is a heart-wrenching part of this story. But listen to the way she describes this little girl. And as they were fighting to keep her alive, fighting to get food for her, and just ripping her mother's heart apart every time she hears this little girl cry. Our dear little Maria was the greatest sufferer at this time. My illness depriving her of her usual nourishment and neither a nurse nor a drop of milk could be procured in the village. By making presents to the jailers, I obtained leave from Mr. Judson to come out of prison and to take the emaciated creature around the village to beg a little nourishment from those mothers who had young children. Her cries in the night were heartrending when it was impossible to supply her wants. I now began to think the very afflictions of Job had come upon me. When in health I could bear the various trials and vicissitudes through which I was called to pass, but to be confined with sickness and unable to assist those who were so dear to me, she's talking about her daughter, Nadaniram, who's in prison, when in distress was almost too much for me to bear. And had it not been for the consolations of Christ in an assured conviction that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I must have sunk under my accumulated sufferings. How do you make it through those things? How do you make it through the trials? My husband's in jail. We came as missionaries. My child's literally dying in front of me. She's dying of starvation. And I believe with rock-solid conviction that this is from the hand of a loving, merciful God. That's how you survive. That's how you make it through. That's how you understand. And your eyes can see past the things of this world. You understand the sovereignty of God. This quote from Charles Spurgeon I found dear to me, especially when I was overseas. It would be a very sharp and trying experience for me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. The last part there, they're measured out in weight and quantity. Basically, every suffering that I go through, every trial that is brought into my life was custom made. It's a particular puzzle piece. All of the edges are cut just right for Brooks Buser, for you. Everything that comes into your life was not just cake batter applied across all Christians. You know what? This group is getting all this today. No, 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 no. 
Every trial that comes into my life, every trial that comes into your life, every suffering Christian and Christian missionary was custom made for you by a loving Father who knows you and is working all things out for his glory and for your good. That's the confidence that Christians have. That's the confidence you must have if you are to make it through the crashing waves, the winds of this life. My God has ordained all of these things. And then finally, a biblical view of this world and the world to come. Uh, this to me is so key, so paramount to understand that one, we're citizens of a different world. And that, that's, a, that's something that only comes in time. I find that when I talk to high school kids, they generally think in terms of months. They think in terms of, okay, next month is basketball season, in six months I'm going to graduate to my junior year, in nine months I'm going to become a senior, or in a year, or 12 months I'm going to make it off to college. They think in terms of months. When you get to college kids, university, and most of the way through their master's, they think in terms of years. Well, in two years, Lord willing, I'll finish my degree and three years I'll get a job and maybe I'll get married in there and then I gotta start making house insurance payments and all these different th they think in terms of years but those who are getting into their 40s their 50s and 60s and Lord willing Christians they think in terms of eternity they think past this world they see past all of the things that are going around them they see past elections they see past coronavirus they see past all of the different things. Well, this is how it used to be when my father showed it. You're talking about this world. I'm thinking about another world. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be involved. Man, there'll be another week, and I'll be on a walk with my family, a uh, right-to-life walk for unborn children that are getting aborted by uh, too big of a number in California. I'll be there. I care about the things of this world. But Christians have always had this unique ability to be members, uh, be part of this world, but we're citizens of another. In this passage, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, he, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, but he's talking about the patriarchs. He's talking about the early fathers, those in Christ. And he says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Basically, they didn't get everything that was promised to them. They never knew the one who was to come, who was to bring fulfillment, who was to fulfill all of the promises, though they were in Christ. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They acknowledged what was obvious. We're outsiders. This isn't our home. We're strangers. We're exiles. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They're thinking of the world to come. The world to come matters more to them than the world to which they came from. They could have gone back to the ancestral lands, to the lands, thinking specifically of Abraham here. Could have gone back. Could have gone back. No, no, no. I'm thinking of another land. Thinking of my true homeland. God has prepared a city for them. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. 
This is such a wonderful passage. If you haven't memorized large portions of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you're missing out. Do it for your own health and for your own Christian walk. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And the, Paul is speaking here, seeing all of the things that are happening and how the gospel is starting to work its way around and starting to get into different parts of the Gentile world. And we're starting to see these wonderful things starting to happen. And he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, he's talking about the body, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This, the flesh, the bones, the six foot two, this is all brooks. This is fading away. This is light and momentary. Paul, who would endure whippings, who would endure getting beaten by rods five times, who would endure shipwrecks, who would go through stonings, who had the audacity to say of all of those things, light and momentary. Light and momentary. How? How could he say that? How can Christians, how can Adoniram Judson, as his daughter's withering away, as he would lose Ann Judson just a few months after he makes it out of jail, feels like a victory lap. God has seen him through this incredible trial, and she dies. And the daughter that was emaciated, that they carried around that village, getting milk from nursing mothers to keep her alive, she would die a few weeks after her mother. And Naram would keep going. How? Because this is temporary. This, this is temporary. The world to come, that's real. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Christians, we fix our eyes on what is unseen. We fix our eyes on the eternal. Adoniram Judson in suffering. Uh, this is a wonderful chunk. This is back at the beginning of the biography. And you got to remember that Adoniram and Anne were the first missionaries that anybody knew about from the United States heading off for the first time. And so there's, they're getting ready to leave. They'd already said goodbye to the church that Adoniram had been raised in the faith in. Then they go to the church where Anne had been raised in. And Anne's best friend, she went on the journey, and she ended up dying on the, on the voyage over there, on the voyage or soon after. I can't remember which one. But her best friend and her were raised in this church, and the minister is about to give this message. And these are the first missionaries, and they're going off, and nobody knows. It's like they're, send, they're sending them off to Mars. Nobody knows what's going to happen here. And here's how the pastor recounts it. And listen to the end how the families of the church who have known these two little girls raise them, how they get through this. The church was jammed to the rafters with onlookers. Some were merely curious to see the first foreign missionaries in person. But to most, the occasion was a heart-wrenching farewell to two girls they had seen grow up almost as members of their own families. The good old minister had known the two since their infancy, many times visiting the Hasseltine Dance Hall. That was her maiden name, Anne Hasseltine. And he had seen them whirling about flushed and happy, enjoying themselves without a thought of what life would bring. He spoke to them, therefore, before the pack throng as if he were their loving father. My dear children, he told them, you are now engaged in the best of causes. It is that cause for which Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world and suffered and died. 
you literally forsake father and mother, brothers and sisters for the sake of Christ and the promotion of his kingdom. He had words for the girl's parents too and for the congregation, but the end of the discourse, he turned again to Nancy and Harriet. That was Anne's other name. She was known by either Anne or Nancy. He turned again to Nancy and Harriet and he concluded in a voice nearly breaking, to the care of the great head of the church I now commit them. To his grave I also resign you. May he gather you together in one, and may you all return and come to Zion with a song and with shouts of everlasting glory. How do you get over sending two daughters of your church that you have raised, you've seen them from infancy? You look to the world to come. You look to Zion. You look past this world. You understand this world is temporary. And what we do in this world will have eternal ramifications. That's how Christians for thousands of years have had the strength to say goodbye to family. I find that when I speak to West Coast kids, kids from the West Coast, they generally are thinking through lost opportunities. The hardest thing for them is walking away because most of them don't come from a lot of families that have stayed together for their entire childhood. They're thinking of lost jobs. They're thinking of lost potential degrees, of lost opportunities. But I, when I speak to kids from the Midwest and the South, they're generally thinking through, all my cousins are within 10 miles of here. My dad has the farm that I'm supposed to look after. The possibility of saying goodbye to family can be one of the biggest stumbling blocks to most people heading into missions because they think of all of the things, good things. These aren't evil things. These are good things. And how do you get past that? A family who loves you, a family who wants you around, a family who you can be a witness to. You look past these things, these good things, and you look to Zion and what it will be like someday. This is... Uh, I think this is this last quote that I have. This is Adoniram's second wife, Sarah, and this is her passing. In those days when someone would get sick, uh, usually it was because of the environment, the dust, the different diseases they would get. And so they'd put them on ships and they would take them out to sea and they would try and get them to recover. Most of the time they would. They would come back uh, from sickness while they were in the uh, sea voyage. And Sarah here. Uh, she is <clears throat> on this ship and Adnaram and the kids are with her and they went with her because she was really close to death and they're hoping that she'll recover. But it becomes apparent that she's not going to. And listen to the close of this as Adnaram sees the end of his second wife. Her mind became liable to wander, but a single word was sufficient to recall and steady her recollection. On the evening of the 31st of August, she appeared to be drawing near to the end of her pilgrimage. The children took leave of her and retired to rest. I sat alone to the side of her bed during the hours of the night, endeavoring to administer relief to the distressed body and consolation to the departing soul. At two o'clock in the morning, wishing to obtain one more token of recognition, I roused her attention and said, Do you still love the Savior? Oh, yes, she replied. I ever love the Lord Jesus Christ. I said again, Do you still love me? And she replied in the affirmative by a peculiar expression of her own. Then give me one more kiss, and we exchanged that token of love for the last time. Another hour passed, life continued to recede, and she ceased to breathe. For a moment I traced her upward flight and thought of the wonders which were opening to her view. 
On the following morning, no vestige of the island was discernible in the distant horizon. For a few days in the solitude of my cabin with my poor children crying around me, I could not help abandoning myself to heartbreaking sorrow. But the promise of the gospel came to my aid, and faith stretched out her view to the bright world of eternal life and anticipated a happy meeting with those beloved beings whose bodies were moldering at Amherst and St. Helena. Amherst is where he buried Anne. St. Helena is where he buried Sarah after she passed away. This is how he gets through. He thinks of what a wonderful reunion it'll be someday. What will it be like to see these two wonderful soldiers, these saints of the faith, Anne and Sarah? He finds hope in the darkest of hours by thinking of the world to come. This is the last slide I have for you. These are some of the dear friends of mine. Uh, I hope whoever's <coughs> showing you this PowerPoint doesn't put these on the internet, but these are dear friends around the world, uh, some of whom have lost family, some of whom have endured tremendous things, taking the gospel to places and to people that have yet to hear the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's my hope for you guys, wherever you hear this message, this short little talk, that you will understand the expectation of being a Christian. You will think through, this is what it means to be a Christian. It's not an abnormality to have these weights, these sufferings, these things brought on us. Number two, you'll think specifically about, for me to see the gospel go somewhere, that, that's the implication of that is to see long-term ministry, to see a church planted among a people group. And then number three, uh, you'll remember the sweet sovereignty of your God, that in his love, in his mercy, all of these things custom-made are specific for you. And he loves you, and he brings these things into your life for a specific purpose. And then finally, you'll remember the world to come. You may have a passport that comes from the United States of America. You may have a passport from Canada. You may have a passport from any number of nations. You're not from that country. If you're a Christ follower, if you're one of those elect, those saints, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, you're from a different country. You have a different homeland. And someday you will make it home. Someday you will make it there, and that homeland will be sweet. That will be worth all of the suffering that we go through. So my prayer for you and my hope for any who hear this message is that we will think through these things as Christians in our time that God has called us to, that we will walk faithfully with this in mind. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have ordained the beginning from the end. You do not see time in a linear manner as human beings do. We are finite. You are infinite. Father, give all of us strength and courage for whatever you ordain and bring into our life. Father, give us a vision for our homeland. Give us a vision for something beyond this world. May we walk faithfully in the days that you bring us into knowing that someday we will be united to you. Someday everything will be made right. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.